8. Repression. I was now convinced that the priority was to work in the communities to increase the people's consciousness. Any actual fighting in the war of liberation would have to wait. I arrived back in San Francisco in the middle of a crisis, the entire San Francisco chapter of the Black Panthers had resigned. That was in January of 1969. During my absence, the decision-makers at the Oakland headquarters had created an internal police force, the Black Guard, and its first act was to go to San Francisco to try to intimidate everyone and bring them under headquarters' direct control. To understand the full impact of what had happened, it is worth knowing certain characteristics about the people in our San Francisco group, we never sought personal glory or attention. We never engaged in power struggles or anything like that. We considered unity and love vital ingredients of any successful struggle. Every move we made was in the interest of the struggle, or so we thought. The party leadership, however, wasn't always on the same page. One incident that highlights the discord between the factions happened on the night of a rally at the Fillmore Auditorium. Bobby Seal came over with a carload of Panthers from Oakland, plus a few bottles of scotch. That not only surprised us but was cause for concern among the San Francisco Panthers because one of the requirements for being a member of the organization was following all the rules and regulations. Rule number 3 stated that no Panther was to be drinking while doing party work, and rule number 7 stated that no member of the party was to be armed while under the effects of alcohol or drugs. Nothing was said at the time because of the respect everyone had for Bobby, but we all felt that he was showing a bad example and that he seemed to be establishing a double standard, do what I say, not what I do. He and those who had come with him hit the scotch pretty heavy that night, and sometime over the course of the evening, one of the people with him, a man no one knew, pulled out a gun. Luckily, we never found out what he intended to do with it because the instant he came out with it he was pinned to the floor, thanks to the quick action of our security people. Instead of being commended for their vigilance, however, they were condemned, by Bobby. That was a flagrant injustice, clear to everyone. The next thing we knew, the black guard had shown up, ordered me to turn over the security guard to them, confiscated his weapon, which Eldridge had bought, and then proceeded to beat him as punishment for his vigilance. With incidents like that having escalated the tension, I arrived back in San Francisco just in time to avert what surely would have been a bloodbath. After much discussion, things were kept under control, but the idea that the Panthers should have an internal police force like the Black Guard drove away more than one good militant at that time. For those of us who stayed, we considered it an unfortunate incident and a reminder that we would all do our best to ensure it never happened again. Unfortunately, as far as the San Francisco group was concerned, the seeds of mistrust between the militants at the base and the party leadership at the top had been sown. Soon after that, I was summoned to a meeting of the Central Committee, which by now was really thinned out. Bobby and David Hilliard, the Chief of Staff, did most of the talking, and what it boiled down to was them telling me I no longer had the right to travel without their authorization. No consideration at all was given to the fact that my travels had been done with Eldridge's knowledge and consent. I was convinced that meeting was in retaliation for the incident at the Fillmore Auditorium, they wanted to remind our San Francisco group that the Oakland leaders were still in charge. David asked why I hadn't been there when it was time to barricade ourselves with Eldridge, basically questioning my commitment to the party. When I said Eldridge had told me he wasn't going to do that because he intended to split, he seemed surprised and said no more. The meeting ended with a threat, I would be killed if I went running around again without their permission. My head was swimming.
just two days before I'd had a meeting with Bobby and David in which I'd told them of my travels and my assessment of the situation on a national scale, and of my belief that it was now necessary to redouble our efforts on the community level. And now my love and admiration for the Panthers and my renewed dedication, coming as a result of my travels, had only brought threats on my life. I was so upset I couldn't reason. I assumed there had to be a misunderstanding somewhere and all I had to do was figure out what it was and then everything would be all right. By January of 1969 the Black Panther Party had chapters all over the country. The party, as it then stood, had been built up by Eldridge, with the help of countless thousands, naturally, to keep Huey from being sent to the gas chamber. Huey was then in prison at the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, California, and Eldridge had fled the country and gone into exile. None of us who were left really knew what to do. Other than the campaign to free Huey, there was no long-range strategy or plan of action for leading the struggle, despite the fact that we now had a national organization in our hands. We hit the books to grasp Marxism-Leninism as a tool that would help us with the task ahead, and political education became the order of the day. Daily community work continued, but every spare minute was used to study. Each branch was to conduct at least three formal political education classes a week, and in addition to attending classes at the branch offices across the Bay Area, we all went to headquarters on Sundays for a general class. The demographic makeup of the organization was such that there were many members who could not read or effectively understand what they were reading, and so we used the tried and true method of going through the materials word by word, line by line, not advancing until everything was understood by all. Ironically, the ideological basis for the internal destruction of the Black Panther Party was laid with the first book we studied. It was Joseph Stalin's The Foundations of Leninism. That text was used to instill love for the party above everything else, even, eventually, the struggle, as it turned out. We didn't know then that Stalin had massacred millions in the name of the party, and I must admit that, at the time, I'm not sure it would have mattered. That thought is very frightening, but it is one I cannot deny. One thing proves certain, if you can get an African-American lumpen proletariat to love Stalin, you either have a true revolutionary or a cold-blooded killing machine. As the ideas of Marxism-Leninism spread throughout the party, it quickly became afflicted with avant-gardism and elitism, considering itself the sole possessor of the truth. Anyone who didn't adhere to Marxist-Leninist ideas was treated as an inferior being, worthy of being despised. Adopting the Marxist-Leninist structure of the party, with democratic centralism as its soul, all power was then confiscated in the name of the Central Committee, which, in reality, meant just David and Bobby. In name I was a member of the Central Committee from the time I met Bobby at the beginning of 1968 until I resigned in the autumn of 1972, and during that time there was never one meeting of the Central Committee, nor were there ever points at which members of the Central Committee were asked to vote on any proposition. Or, if there was, I was never told about it. Whenever David or Bobby thought up anything, it was simply sent down through the organization as a directive from the Central Committee. Frankly, I did not object to that way of doing things at the time because I didn't know what else to do. I was aware of my intellectual limitations and had no pretensions of being a political analyst, so I blindly went along with the usurpation of power, as did most everyone in the party at that time. In the beginning of 1969 it also became necessary to clean up the organization and instill discipline. For the mobilization of the Free Huey campaign, recruitment had been wide open, and not much more than loyalty was asked of our members. 
as long as one did what one was told, that was about all that was required to be part of the party. As a consequence, there were many undisciplined individuals claiming the Panther title. Many Panthers would only show up at rallies or events where they got the opportunity to look sharp in the Panther uniform, but when it came to everyday work like selling papers or distributing leaflets, they thought that was beneath them. Some related only to the uniform and the gun. With the lull in floor show activities after Huey was imprisoned and Eldridge was in exile, these individuals began roaming around intimidating people, trying to prove how bad they were. That, combined with some being caught in petty robberies, started heaping scorn on the reputation of the party, and eventually someone decided it was necessary to begin purging the membership of all uncontrollable elements. And the axe started swinging. I believe it was necessary. There were some righteous fools, dangerous in their stupidity, who, if left unchecked, would have destroyed the party in short order. Expulsion notices were published weekly in the party newspaper, and in addition to the purge, a new rule was imposed to stop all the petty criminal activity that was tarnishing the party image. Henceforth, any operations of a military nature had to be approved by the Central Committee. Operating with the personal authorization of Huey, I had organized and was working with several groups outside the formal party structure. The requirement from Huey was that they all had to adhere to party rules and regulations and accept the Panther philosophy. Not one of those groups had ever been involved in a mishap, no one ever got busted carrying out an operation, and all operations had been deemed successful. These groups were strong, disciplined, and proud. When I passed on word of the new rules to one of the groups, however, there was a very negative reaction. It was, more or less, fuck the Central Committee. Again, I blocked. I talked of the need to stay in the party because of the level of work that needed to be done. The party had to be strengthened to be able to deal with the task ahead. I wasn't ready to leave the party personally, and since I was staying, I was going to abide by the rules and regulations. The thing that made the negotiations difficult for me was the fact that the new rules would necessarily shut down an operation we had been working on that would have been beneficial to everyone. It was planned for the very weekend after the new rules were made, and we didn't want to abandon it. After some discussion, members of this group agreed that I would ask the Central Committee for authorization to carry out the operation anyway. I had a meeting with Bobby and David on a Friday night to tell them of our plan. They said we would have to ask Huey and then do whatever he said. I contacted the group and relayed the response. Early the next morning, to my surprise, someone from the group came by and woke me up to tell me they didn't want to wait to see what Huey said and had gone ahead and gotten a replacement for me so they could proceed with the operation as planned. I was told there was nothing to discuss. There was nothing for me to do then but sit back and let it happen. Since I knew all about the operation, I knew precisely what time it was supposed to jump off, so I turned on the radio and waited. It was a very punctual operation, and news flashes came just minutes after the operation was put into motion. But something had gone wrong, one person had been arrested. He was my replacement. I drove straight to Oakland, feeling it was necessary to warn headquarters in case the action was able to be connected to the party. I did it prepared to suffer the consequences. Since I had just been told the night before to wait for Huey's decision, I was expecting to, at the least, be expelled. To decide my case, a quick meeting was called of all the leadership present, including Bunchy Carter, founder of the Southern California chapter. The final decision was that if the operation turned bad for the party, I would be expelled. If it didn't, 
I had to leave the San Francisco office and report to Oakland headquarters every day instead. The thing that bothered me most was having Bunchy look at me when I was leaving and say softly, some people think they're special. Well, the leadership had been wanting control of the San Francisco office, and now they had it. The operation did not turn bad, so instead of being expelled I would be punished. I would now have to go to headquarters every day, my wings were clipped. We all knew I was being disciplined not because of the operation, per se, but because I had known that it was going ahead anyway and hadn't immediately reported that information to headquarters. I was being punished because I showed more loyalty to my comrades and the cause than to the party leadership. The party then received its biggest shock since little Bobby was killed. Bunchy and John Huggins were shot down on the UCLA campus by members of the cultural nationalist group called the U.S. Organization, headed by bald-headed Ron Karenga. We were in a bitter fight with Karenga and had condemned what we called porkchop cultural nationalism. We didn't think there was any such thing as a cultural revolution divorced from armed struggle or class warfare. As the party newspaper put it in the issue of March 16, 1969, we accused Karenga and his ilk of being the champion of the status quo and articulating a sensational, comical racism as a cover-up for counter-revolutionary politics and concrete economic issues. We went further, accusing cultural nationalism as being loved dearly by the racist pigs of the power structure because it divides the oppressed and exploited workers on the basis of skin on the one hand and acts as the seedbed for black capitalism on the other. Bunchy and John were killed just shy of a year after the death of Arthur, Bunchy's brother, the first Black Panther to be killed. That hurt real bad. Up until then, the Panthers' struggle against cultural nationalism had been on an ideological level, but now it was war. Anyone in the party who had ever had contact with one of these cultural groups, which was practically everybody, was now suspect. It was open season on niggers with bald heads, which was a popular style for followers of nationalist philosophies. I'm sure some Los Angeles barbers lost some business around this time. I was designated to go down and deal with the Los Angeles office after attending Bunchy's and John's funerals. This assignment was given in such a way that I could not help feeling it was intended to put me in the hot seat. And it was hot. Niggers with bald heads were looking to shoot at anything in a black leather jacket, and niggers in black leather jackets were looking to shoot at anything with a bald head. When you war with the police, they come into your area as strangers, but when you're warring with people from your own community, it's much more tense because you both know the same terrain. I don't know the exact number of deaths that resulted from the war of attrition that followed, but I think it was around six. I was glad to get back to the Bay Area, where things were calmer. In response to the killings, all resources of the Black Panther Party were mobilized, from coast to coast, in condemnation of cultural nationalism. Later, when the COINTELPRO efforts were exposed in 1971, it became clear that the FBI had been right in the middle of it all, pitting groups against each other in an effort to neutralize various efforts to empower blacks. The other notable point of interference from the authorities was of course the April 1969 indictments of 21 Panthers from the New York chapter who were charged with conspiracy in the plan to attack several police stations. Their bail was set at $100,000. It was immediately clear that the operation had been the work of police agents embedded inside the party, and even though all of the Panthers were eventually acquitted, we then found ourselves looking out not just for niggers with bald heads but for agents and provocateurs who said they were on our side. Kathleen Cleaver, who had stayed behind when Eldridge fled the country, was supposed to speak at an anti-war rally in Central Park, 
but at the last minute the Central Committee decided to send me instead. I was now convinced that every time there was trouble or risk involved, I would be chosen to represent the party. That was okay with me, at least I would be traveling again. But it was a joke sending me to make a speech. I had never done that before and was scared to death. My work to that point had been such that it was necessary for me to keep as low a profile as possible and stay away from the limelight, so I hadn't had any experience speaking before large crowds. Being as uptight as I was, I knew I couldn't deal with it. The only solution was to use the six-hour plane ride to write a statement to read, rather than rely on any ability to speak off the top of my head. It was a good thing I did that, because when I arrived at Sheep Meadow in Central Park, there were what seemed like 500,000 people there. It was unimaginable. In addition to all the people in the crowd, it was wall-to-wall pigs. Up until that time, whenever I had been at a public event, security had always been provided by the organizers of the event, which meant they were sympathetic to the cause, but there in Central Park, security was composed of policemen in uniform standing shoulder to shoulder all along the edge of the stage. I couldn't think of anything more ridiculous than police acting as security. It was difficult, to say the least, getting used to the way they did things in New York. I swallowed my heart, got up on stage, read the statement I had written, and quickly got out of there. Upon my return to headquarters, the leadership decided that it was an urgent necessity to send people to every corner of the country where there were groups operating in the name of the Black Panther Party. On adopting the Marxist-Leninist model of the party, as defined by Stalin, the party was then governed, in principle, by democratic centralism, which meant all branches were now required to adhere to the party line and to discipline as defined by the Central Committee. Branches that did not follow this rule were to be dissolved as necessary. Representatives were sent out across the country to give coherence to the mass that was moving in the name of the Black Panther Party, and where branches could be saved, their leadership was sent to headquarters to receive intensive, first-hand political education and observe how the party functioned on the West Coast. For the first time in months, I was allowed to spend time again in the San Francisco office, this time to prepare for mobilization in advance of a rally to be held on May Day in front of the federal building in San Francisco. Everyone worked hard putting up posters and passing out leaflets to ensure the success of the rally, but we ran into trouble one day when one Leroy Looper got upset and said a comrade couldn't put up posters outside Looper's Center for Drug Addicts, which had opened a couple of doors down from the Panther office on Fillmore Street. We don't know what the comrade told Looper, but Looper came to the Panther office with a gun and emptied it inside. Fortunately, no one was hit, but that man had to be insane. I rushed from my home, which was only a few blocks away, formed an execution squad and, arms in hand, combed the Fillmore looking for Looper. As far as we were concerned, anybody who would shoot up a Panther office had passed his own judgment. We weren't going to disappoint all the people in the area who had witnessed his stupid act and who were standing around watching to see what we were going to do. It was going to be a public execution in the middle of the street for everyone to see. Fortunately, we didn't find him. After that incident, we put guns in the office in case anyone ever had such ideas again. As May Day drew near, we increased our propaganda and agitation which included setting up loudspeakers outside the office and having a car circulating in the community with loudspeakers on top. In between playing Malcolm X's records, someone would talk about the rally and its significance. By then we knew the members of the San Francisco Police Department's tactical squad stationed at the Northern Station, which covered the Fillmore District, and they knew us. 
whenever we would see each other it would be a contest of insults. One morning, Big Red, the most gung-ho of them, kept cruising by with a big grin on his face, shouting insults at whoever was on the loudspeaker outside our office. Then, in the beginning of the afternoon, he came by driving the car we had fitted with the loudspeakers. Obviously, Big Red had decided to have some fun. We were making phone calls to find out where the comrades in the car had been taken when someone from outside started shouting, here they come. I looked out the door and saw tactical squad cars converging on the office from both directions. I told everyone to take cover, and they all ran upstairs. There were about 15 people in the office at the time, about half being members of the community who were there getting information about the upcoming rally. Once I was sure everyone was out of sight, I went to the corner and took the 12-gauge shotgun we had propped in the corner and started walking to the back of the office. At that instant, the front door was kicked in. With the shotgun in my hands, I knew if I made a move like I was going to turn around they would shoot me down, so instead I only turned my head just enough so I could see three of them, including Big Red, standing in the doorway with their M16S. Since I hadn't stopped walking, one of them said, stop and drop the gun. I only had a couple of steps to go before I would be at the doorway leading to the back of the office, so I kept walking and made a motion like I was going to lean the shotgun against the wall. Someone said, drop the gun or you're a dead man, but by that time I was close enough to the doorway that I was able to dive through it and behind the wall, where I was greeted by a big smile on the face of Eddie Griffin. The pigs at the door fell back, shouting, they've got guns but I didn't share Eddie Griffin's smile because I knew we were at a great disadvantage. We had some guns, sure, but Panther offices at that time were not yet equipped to resist an attack. In fact, it was precisely that attack that subsequently prompted the order for all Panther offices to install the necessary equipment for defense against police assault. With the pigs now gone, I crawled to the front of the office, with Griff Graf covering me, to check out the situation outside. I couldn't see a thing moving, and it was about that time they started lobbing the gas. And it wasn't ordinary tear gas. It was the stuff they were using in Vietnam that burned the skin, induced instant vomiting and mucus overproduction, and was both blinding and suffocating. Luckily, Griff and I were near the hole that had been cut in the wall as an alternate exit, and we called for everyone to come down and get out through the hole. Because they had all received the full effects of the gas by then, however, they were in pretty bad shape. Following the noise from our choking and gagging, the pigs ran around the block and trapped us all in the empty lot behind the office, telling everyone to spread their legs and lean against the wall with their hands up. My girlfriend Barbara was pretty sick and started slumping like she was going to pass out, and when I grabbed her to hold her up, Big Red shouted, Nigger, I said put your hands up against the wall, and fired a burst from his M16. I don't know if he had intended to hit me or not, but after I was bailed out I went back to the site and stood by the bullet holes, which lined up at the height of my nose. Everyone was arrested, and almost everyone was released within an hour because there was really nothing anyone could be charged with. Cleve Brooks and I were the only ones held longer, and I don't know what Cleve was charged with, but I was charged with assault. After they had assaulted our office. That was exactly one of our definitions of pig, the aggressor posing as the victim. Big Red was quite an actor, and in court he gave an Academy Award-worthy performance telling the judge how I had dropped to one knee while pointing the shotgun at the officers. Anyone in their right mind would know that if I had made a move to turn around I would have been shot down. A few weeks later, 
headquarters sent me to Boston and Detroit to iron out some organizational problems. The head of the Boston office, Charles Chico Neblet, didn't agree with the party line of making alliances with all progressive forces without regard to color, and he was refusing to pick up the Panther newspaper sent to the airport. In addition, he was showing signs of sudden wealth, which we found suspicious. He had bought a new Corvette Stingray and drove around in it wearing a big fur coat. It was clear to us that he must be ripping off funds from the party. He refused to go to headquarters and answer to that, so I expelled him and all his followers and reorganized the office under the leadership of Doug Miranda. My traveling partner at this time was Robert Spider Webb. Spider had done two stretches in Vietnam, as a sergeant and point man on foot patrols, and had survived to tell about it. The point man on patrol is the easiest target and usually the first shot, so the fact that he was alive seemed proof that the Viet Cong hadn't wanted to kill him. Spider was wounded three times, but nothing serious. He used to visit Vietnamese families and, thanks to them, became politicized against the war. When he returned home, he came straight into the party. Spider had migrated with his family from the south and lived up on Hunter's Point. He always had a smile on his face and the calm that is characteristic of southern rural blacks. Everyone loved Spider. When Huey was released from prison in August of 1970, Spider became one of his personal bodyguards, and it was no surprise since, because of his military training and experience, when you put a gun in Spider's hands it was like watching a ballet dancer. When he moved it was as if his body was made of a viscous fluid. He seemed to flow when he moved. He was a righteous Black Panther. After things were more or less stabilized in Boston, we went on to Detroit, where it was only a matter of clarifying structure and rules, and getting the leadership to California. While there, I received an urgent phone call from headquarters telling me to go to New York and wait for David Hilliard, who was flying in. I arrived in New York the night before the rendezvous, and while lying in bed listening to the news I learned that Alex Rackley, a Panther from the Harlem office, had been murdered in New Haven, Connecticut. The leadership of the party there had been arrested on charges of having killed 19-year-old Rackley because they suspected he was a police informant. Another blow. As I entered the building for our meeting the next morning, two Panthers from the Bay Area that I knew very well were on their way out. They didn't stop, didn't smile, and only nodded their heads and kept stepping. I didn't know what was going on, but there was heavy tension in the air. After the meeting with David was over, my next task was to find a place to stay for myself plus David and Robert Bay, who were not taking a flight back until the next morning. They were very uptight about having to spend the night, all the busts going on had them feeling insecure. I had a girlfriend in New York who wasn't involved in any politics, so I took them to her pad to stay until it was time to go to the airport. Robert was so nervous he spent the night in a chair in the middle of the room with a .38 special in his hands. It's a good thing a cat didn't knock over a garbage can or something, given the state he was in, he might have shot us all. Remembering when Bobby had told me that whenever I saw something that needed to be done to just do it, the next morning I informed David of my decision to stay on the East Coast to try to put the party there back together again after it had effectively been destroyed by the recent incidents in New Haven and New York. In New Haven the chapter literally didn't exist anymore, and in New York, after the bust of the Panther 21, everything was in limbo. All the people who had been sent from headquarters to organize the East Coast were either in jail or on the run, and it was obvious by David's and Robert's current attitudes that they were only concerned about getting out of town and saving their own skins. So, 
effectively, the East Coast had been abandoned. When I told him my plan, David looked at me like he thought I was crazy and said, deal with it. And with that, he and Robert split. 9. The Big Apple New York, New York, The Big Apple. I thought it was a wild place, but it had a magnetic effect upon me. Coming from a place as quiet, clean, and relatively calm as San Francisco, my first impression was that it was the dirtiest place I had ever seen, with chuck holes in the streets big enough to stop a tank. I also noticed that in Harlem, at around 5 or 6 in the afternoon, the sidewalks filled up with people. The only time I had seen people in the streets like that in California, there was a riot or something. It turned out to be a traditional thing to do at that time of day, in part because few buildings had air conditioning and it would be suffocating inside in the summers. The thing that disturbed me most was seeing the adults, kids, and even babies strung out on smack. Even the lampposts were leaning. It was sickening to see kids of 9 or 10 years old hanging onto a parking meter to keep from falling while they vomited their insides out. The most frightening of all was the fact that, after a few weeks, I began to get used to seeing such scenes. They were part of the landscape. Working out of the Panther office on 7th Avenue, between 121st and 122nd Streets, I soon become aware that the representatives who had been sent from headquarters before me had alienated the few people that were still coming around after the 21 bust. They had arrived with the dogmatism and arrogance that most of us fall victim to when we have our first taste of Marxism-Leninism, embracing the tendency to think of ourselves as the sole possessors of truth. In the end, I would realize that true liberation will never come by that route. The first thing I did in New York was attempt to neutralize any police agents still hanging around in the woodwork. I was authorized by headquarters to ban anyone from showing or even talking about weapons or military operations. Anyone violating that rule was automatically expelled. That way, if there were any agents still around trying to entrap anyone, they would have to show their hand. Later, one did. There were several overt provocations carried out by different agencies while I was in New York. They had historically operated on fertile ground, since the city was so big that it wasn't possible for all the Panther members to know each other, as we did in the Bay Area. Our plan was that as long as everyone respected organizational discipline, the only way agents could get anything done was by breaking the rules and exposing themselves. On one such occasion, FBI agents openly deposited money in the bank account of one of the heads of the Staten Island branch of the party. Some way or another the person in question was duped into accepting it, and the FBI doubtless had hopes that this would precipitate a reaction on our part of a magnitude that would permit them to come up with another conspiracy case. Being aware of that, however, we were able to devise a method of dealing with the situation without giving the Bureau the opportunity to vamp on us. I looked for and found a doctor who agreed to administer a truth serum to the man who had accepted the FBI's money. When I offered the dupe the choice of expulsion from the party or an interrogation under the influence of the drug, he chose to resign. We knew we had him, and that was the end of the affair. Or so I thought. Two days later the Wall Street Journal's top front page story was about the incident. In terms of everything else going on at that time, it didn't make sense why this story merited that level of attention, especially by the journal, which is no scandal sheet, and to this day, I'm not really sure why they chose to run the story, but there's no doubt in my mind where they got their information. None of the other papers made mention of the affair. There was another occasion when there was a clear case of entrapment. 
That time it turned out to be by the New York Police Department. One morning while listening to the news, Zaid Shakur and I were shocked to hear of the arrest of several Panthers in a roadblock at one of the exits of the West Side Highway. It was reported they were heavily armed and were on their way to carry out some military operation. The police said they had been tipped off and laid an ambush. They knew what car the Panthers would be in, its license number, and which exit they would be taking. By all the information they were giving out, it was obvious to us that the police had set up the operation themselves, through an embedded agent, an obvious attempt to strengthen the extremely weak case against the New York 21. Zaid immediately called a press conference and condemned the arrests as an obvious police provocation, adding that if, by chance, there were any active Panthers lured into participating in the setup, they would be automatically expelled from the party. Everyone knew the standing rule that stipulated any member of the party that discussed, planned, or participated in any type of military operation was to be automatically expelled. After we got the names of those involved, it was clear who one of the agents was. He had previously tried, unsuccessfully, to infiltrate the Brooklyn branch of the party, but thanks to the new measures of security, he had been denied entry. Sure enough, just five hours after the highway incident took place, he was mysteriously bailed out. We got his home address from his application and took tape recorders and a camera there to interview him. We were surprised that he had given his correct address, but by the time we arrived, four black plainclothes policemen were already moving his belongings out of his apartment into a waiting van. We parked on the corner and watched the operation for a while, then split. It was obvious he was already in hiding and wouldn't be showing up. The difficulty with that affair was the suffering of those who had allowed themselves to be entrapped. They had, openly and consciously, ignored party discipline, and yet after they were arrested they wanted the party to come to their rescue. It was difficult but necessary to enforce party rules and regulations. It was especially disturbing when the mother of one of the victims came to the office to ask aid for her son and I had to deny it. I felt that the security of the party had to take priority, and no exception could be made for those who openly violated discipline. The rules in question had been devised to protect members of the organization from just such provocations, and if we looked the other way on this first infraction, that would jeopardize everyone's security. It would have made us easy targets for all the other snakes lying in the cut, waiting to strike. There were already 21 people under indictment for conspiracy charges thanks to the work of at least five known agents who had not only infiltrated the party but had helped organize the New York branch at its inception. The only way I knew of to put an end to such activities was to enforce strict discipline. Sharon and Zide were my right and left hands. You couldn't find better comrades, and together we started slowly putting things back together. Contact with all progressive forces in the area was as solid as any place in the country, and I was calling headquarters practically every day asking for their help in fixing the party on the East Coast. One of the most urgent needs was for intensive political education. There really was no unity of ideas as to what the Panther Party stood for anymore, and it wasn't doing any good having Panthers in the streets with everyone saying something different. Headquarters sent Sam Napier and Sister Diane, a white woman from Los Angeles, who, as far as I knew, was not even in the party. She was a very close comrade, however, and had worked with the party in Los Angeles as well as visited and stayed with us in San Francisco. One of the obstacles in working with the people on the East Coast was the fact that, since the 1920s, New York had been the citadel of black nationalism. For almost 50 years, the people in Harlem had been listening to leaders from Marcus Garvey to Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X, 
and by the end of the 1960s, black nationalism was practically in their genes. Yet Hilliard had sent Diane, who was white, to help out. I could think of no one better to deal with the political education classes than her. She was into Marxism-Leninism long before any of us and was a perfect pedagogue. Luckily, we were able to convince everyone she was Mexican and turned a potential disaster into a good thing. Within a few weeks she had everyone more or less thinking along the same lines when they went out to do community work. This was all great for the party, but I couldn't help but think that Hilliard sending Diane was clear evidence of what he thought of my efforts to reorganize the East Coast. After things had shaped up considerably, we organized a rally at a park in Harlem. I requested a speaker from headquarters, and David came. Despite pouring rain, the rally was a success, and David was apparently impressed with what he saw of our organizational efforts, because upon his return to headquarters he sent Al Carroll and J.B. to help out. That was all that was needed. Al and J.B. were from San Francisco, and you didn't have to tell them anything. They knew what to do. One of the efforts we took seriously was the health and well-being of our members. After one of the Panthers started frequently falling sick and a doctor told us he was suffering from malnutrition, we immediately organized dinners in the offices every night for members, and everyone was to go work at one of the free breakfast for school children programs every morning, assuring each person had at least two meals a day. We also had volunteer doctors come to the office and give physical checkups to everyone. Organizationally, things were looking up. Once the New York chapters were in good order, it became possible to start moving around the East Coast, with competent cadres moving in to help get things organized. The priority was dealing with the situation in New Haven. You couldn't get a panther from headquarters to set foot there, and the former members who were now in jail had effectively been abandoned. To organize support for their defense, I chose people from different offices, then called Doug Miranda, and we went to New Haven. We held a rally in a park close to the downtown area and opened an office there the next day. The authorities came close to getting me that time. The car I was driven around in turned out to be stolen, and they might have caught me if I hadn't ridden back from the rally in a different car. Doug left the rally in the hot car, however, and he was vamped on. When the pigs stopped him, the first thing out of their mouths was, where is DC? Meaning me. Doug hadn't known the car was stolen either, and neither of us knew the police were on our tail. That explained why some of the agents attending the rally had been smiling and waving at me the whole time. After they busted Doug, I finally understood. The next big mobilization was for the United Front Against Fascism conference that the Panthers were organizing for July of 1969 in Oakland. The goal was to have progressive groups from the entire country represented at the conference. We made a swing through New Jersey. Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Washington, D.C., to drum up support for the conference. Barbara had already gone to Philadelphia, her hometown, to help the party there. When we passed through Baltimore we dropped off two comrades to help get things organized, and they were told we would be picking them up in about a week on the return trip. After things were finished in Washington we headed back through the places we'd been the week before, to check on progress. Being in a hurry to get back to New York. I took the stairs at the Baltimore office two at a time. When I got to the door, however, someone stopped me and said don't come in. I asked what was going on and was told there was a pig in the closet, an agent they'd exposed within the party. I asked if he was dead, he said not yet. I asked how long had he been in there, he said three days. 
the temperature had been hitting 100 every day, and I knew instantly that, finally, they had me. I knew that soon there would be another conspiracy case and that this time I would be included. Furious, I jumped back into the car and sped back to New York. I decided to do as much as I could before the fatal day came. That was in June of 1969. Many of the conspiracy cases brought against the party were due to our own mistakes and excessive zeal whenever a police agent was discovered in our ranks. Instead of a small group dealing with things like that, whole branch offices got involved, and that always allowed the authorities to make sweeping arrests. We more or less delivered ourselves to the pigs with these conspiracy cases. I am convinced that most of their agents were sacrificed for the very purpose of allowing them to put whole chapters out of action. And that, of course, led to mistakes, like the case of Alex Rackley, the dead panther at the center of the New Haven chapter's downfall. Alex was an immigrant from the South and hadn't had any schooling. He couldn't read or write, and everyone knew that, but he loved the party and wanted to participate in everything, just like everyone else. That was still during the time of our little red book worship. One day, someone went to the toilet and Alex was sitting there, he hadn't locked the door, and he had a red book in his hands. Open. I'm sure no one knows whether or not he even had it turned the right way, but what they saw had been enough to convince the New Haven leadership that Rackley was an agent, and for that he paid with his life. Stalin was not dead. It wasn't long before police swept through the organization and turned it inside out. Despite the tension and suspicion we had to deal with, mobilization for the anti-fascism conference had gone well, and the event was a success, at least when it came to attendance. Movement representatives came from across the country, all very dedicated and conscious people, but politically, what a disaster. The Black Panther Party had more or less become the avant-garde of the entire radical movement, largely because of its combativeness and progressive political line, but that same dogmatism did not always combine well with the timidity of most white progressive organizations. Mainly due to a passive racism, whatever the Panthers said was law. And we all went for it, at least for a while. Since I had been working on the East Coast, I didn't know exactly what was going to be on the program of the conference, but I knew it was our golden opportunity to get something going on a larger scale. There had never been such an assemblage of progressive forces in the contemporary history of the movement. When I arrived at headquarters for the conference and learned that the program was focused only on a plan for community control of the police, I couldn't believe my ears. They had to be kidding. But no, that was the program. After all the organizing and mobilizing of people to go all the way to Oakland, they were to be force-fed only that one small message. Nothing more. I was embarrassed, for everyone. Why was I staying in the Panther Party at that point? The main reason was because of my love and admiration for Huey and Eldridge, and the love I had for the party and what it had represented for me. I couldn't stop hoping that somehow things would get straightened out. One of the most powerful forces that kept me in the party was the deep comradeship that I had come to know for the first time in my life. I had developed relationships so deep and confident that I was willing to put my life in the hands of certain comrades. At that time, I wasn't capable of thinking about being separated from them. After the conference, I returned to New York and plunged into dealing with community problems, hoping to eliminate the negative thoughts that were becoming more and more inexorable. I was beginning to realize there was no one among us capable of coming up with a correct strategy, neither short nor long term, for leading the struggle. I had no illusions about my own capabilities and knew I didn't have any ideas either. 
so I drowned my anguish in community work. It had been recently announced that the clothing allowance for welfare children was to be suppressed at the beginning of the school year, and so we decided to show our solidarity with those who would be deprived. We canvassed the entire city for donations of clothing and shoes, and we would pass everything out the week before school was to open. The free clothing program was launched. We also came face to face with other groups organizing the black community in the area. On 125th Street and 7th Avenue a group protesting the destruction of buildings to make room for an office tower paid for by a Rockefeller had occupied the lot and brought the work to a standstill. The people involved in the occupation were philosophically part of the black nationalism movement, which was strongly against the Panther position of working with all progressive forces regardless of race, but in the spirit of progress, two nights a week we went with the entire Harlem branch of the Panthers to the lot to wage fierce ideological battles with this group an exercise that ended up being productive for everyone. After a few sessions, it became clear that those running the hardest line had embraced capitalism, and most of them had a particular interest in or were owners of black shops. It was always amazing to hear them arguing against working with whites and then turning the discussion to the need for blacks to stick together and come to their shops and buy one of their $50 dashikis. In contrast, Fred Hampton, the young leader of the Chicago branch of the party, had organized the Rainbow Coalition with white immigrants from Appalachia, who had formed their own organization, called the Patriot Party, which had been modeled after the Panthers. Like blacks, they were cooped up in ghettos and suffered many of the same problems, and the goal of the Rainbow Coalition was to join forces to mobilize these and other struggling communities. Inspired by this group, we decided to make a daring move to help in our efforts to break the hold of the hardline black nationalists in New York. We started organizing a rally at PS 201 in Harlem and invited William Preacherman Vesperman, chairman of the Patriot Party, to speak. At this same time, we were also working with the Young Lords, a Puerto Rican organization modeled after the Panthers, who had come from Chicago to ask for our help in organizing a chapter of the Lords in Spanish Harlem. Our coalition was so strong that we worked hand-in-hand on all activities, but when Felipe Luciano, the chairman of the New York branch, heard we were bringing in Preacher Man, he got uptight. He said it would be a disaster to bring in a white to speak at a Harlem rally. The day of the rally, we still didn't know whether Felipe would speak as representative of the Lords. In the end, he did turn up, but in an effort to distance his young Lords group from the Panthers' endorsement of Preacher Man's young patriots, he showed up to speak wearing a dashiki. Although Felipe had predicted all kinds of problems, and possibly even attacks from nationalist groups, the rally was a success, and after Preacher Man spoke and made it clear that our problems were the same, regardless of color, he received a standing ovation. I basked in the glow of seeing niggers of Harlem, dressed in African clothes, standing and cheering Preacher Man, who was white. The rally was a smash, and as far as I know it was the first of its kind in the contemporary history of the struggle in Harlem. Such experiences reinforced my optimism and my belief that if people are given the correct information about their situations, the usual problems, like racism, can be checked enough to allow them to work together to bring about changes that would be beneficial to everyone. These small successes kept me going, even in the face of other trials. As the representative of the Central Committee on the East Coast, I had to deal with many meetings and speaking engagements, and it seemed that, without exception, everywhere I went I was challenged, and in a more or less hostile manner, to clarify the Panthers' position on the Middle East. I initially had to decline comment given my ignorance of the region's complicated history, 
but the persistence of such questions obliged me to read as many books as possible about the history of Zionism and the state of Israel. What a Pandora's box that turned out to be. After intensive research I learned that Israel was created by a vote at the United Nations that had been undertaken without consulting the people, namely the Palestinians, who already lived in the territory, it was, as I understood it, essentially a way of easing the guilt of the Europeans in the wake of the Holocaust, and also a way of eliminating their Jewish problem. It seemed to me that the ideas of Theodor Herzl, the father of Zionism, and Elijah Muhammad, the founder of the Black Muslims, were about the same things, and also that their efforts were born of similar desperation, desperation to the point that they could see no other solution to their problems than to acquire territory where their people could live separate from everyone else. Just as the Panthers had derided black nationalism as pork chop nationalism, I began calling Zionism kosher nationalism. The economic base of the support for the creation of the State of Israel was to be found in its strategic location. I wrote an article in the summer of 1969 for the Panther paper stating so, and nothing that has occurred in the years since has compelled me to change my mind. In the article, I talked of Menahem Begin, who headed the year gun, a terrorist group that had massacred the inhabitants of a village called Deir Yassin in April 1948. The attackers then circulated around the territory with loudspeakers on their vehicles warning other Palestinians to remember Deir Yassin. They were told that if they didn't want the same thing to happen to them they should flee their homes and leave the territory. It is sad to note that even today Palestinian people are still having their land taken from them and seeing their centuries-old homes bulldozed into dust. History can be a trap. It all depends where you slice it. If we look at it from the biblical time when the Jewish diaspora was created, we must recognize that all the nomadic tribes that lived in the area did not leave, and many of their descendants had been there through 1948 and beyond. I cannot justify putting the rights of the Jewish descendants who left above the rights of the Palestinian descendants who stayed. The fact that different tribes adopted different religions is irrelevant. Also, the fact of supporting the struggle of the Palestinian people can in no way be called anti-Semitism. That is only a historical distortion used by Zionists to intimidate people and garner sympathy. Because in reality both Palestinians and Jews are Semitic peoples. It is a fratricidal struggle. The Palestinian people are the descendants of those who stayed, and the Jews are the descendants of those who left in the diaspora. That is historical fact. If there ever were to be a moral judgment day, I wouldn't want to be counted among the sympathizers of Zionism. I caught hell in New York when I started running that line. At one time the Jewish Defense League made the mistake of sending a group of their militants to set up a picket line outside the Harlem Panther office, and while we went inside and locked the door, the people of the community showed them no mercy and kicked their asses and ran them out of town. Xenophobia is a universal phenomenon. 10. Radical Chic The day of the rally to give away the clothing donations arrived. People lined up two deep, around the block, in both directions. The next day I flew to headquarters, and the plane was held up by two FBI agents who came on board to congratulate me for the success of our efforts. Then they left and the plane took off. Those were some weird types at the FBI. I wonder if they really thought I cared what they thought. On one occasion, two of them kept circling the block where our office was located. When they saw me on one pass, they motioned that I come to their car. I shook my head no and motioned for them to come to me, and I sat on the bench in front of the office. They came. They told me, with the straightest faces, 
that they were representatives of President Nixon and that the President wanted to know just what it was that we wanted. With that, I went into my act. I started by running down the Panther Party's 10-point platform and program. I then demanded the immediate release of our chairman, Bobby Seale, and the rest of the people in New Haven, plus Huey, the New York 21, and every other political prisoner I could think of. They stood calmly the whole time, and when I finished they thanked me and left. Weird people. Several months after the Panthers in New Haven had been arrested, Bobby had been busted and included in the conspiracy case. He was an innocent victim, like I was in Baltimore, we both just happened to pass through the respective cities while some shit was going on that we had nothing to do with. But the authorities seized any opportunity they had to further weaken the party. By then Eldridge had surfaced in Algiers. Having jumped bail in the Bay Area after being arrested for the shootout with the Oakland police, he'd gone to Cuba, where he'd stayed for six months. Others had also gone there to escape the mounting repression in America, including Byron Booth and Raheem Smith, a.k.a. Clinton Robert Smith Jr., who in January of 1969 had escaped together from prison in California and hijacked a plane the next day to Cuba to join Eldridge. Achille, a.k.a. James Patterson, and his wife, Gwen, from the Brooklyn branch had gone there also. The Cuban experience had been far from satisfactory, and ultimately they would leave to join Eldridge in Algiers, which, with Cuba, was at that time governed by revolutionaries and was therefore sympathetic to other struggling revolutionaries. In July of that year, the Central Committee went to Algiers to visit Eldridge and to participate in the Pan-African Cultural Festival, a gathering of nations and representatives of liberation movements. Unfortunately, my work in New York did not permit me to go that time, but I intended to make the trip at my first opportunity. Even though I had been flying out to the West Coast headquarters every two weeks, I had been out of touch on the day-to-day happenings of the party since the anti-fascism conference. I did, however, begin seeing deterioration in the relationships between people in the party. I was noticing an atmosphere of tension and fear building among former comrades, and one thing was clear, Hilliard was ruling with an iron hand. With Bobby in jail in New Haven, that left Hilliard alone in charge. One of the things I was shocked to learn was that party members were being disciplined for misbehavior by being kept in a makeshift jail under headquarters. At one point, there had been a team digging an emergency escape tunnel under headquarters, but after they had hit water and had to abandon the project, the hole was turned into a jail cell where Panthers who displeased the leadership could be thrown. David's brother, June, was the jailer. He carried a blackjack in his pocket and people feared he wouldn't hesitate to hit someone in the head with it for the slightest disagreement. When we started studying Marxism-Leninism, David had always been one of the strongest at manipulating words and ideas for his purposes, but the very strongest was Maasai, Raymond, Hewitt, who had been a member of a Marxist group in Los Angeles before joining the Panthers. He was well-schooled in dialectical materialism, and that's why he was made Minister of Education. It was Maasai who conducted the party's first political education classes. Now, however, in order for David to consolidate his control of the party, it was imperative that he crush Maasai. Maasai, being one of the leaders not then in jail, was the only thing between David and undisputed leadership. As I traveled between New York and the San Francisco Bay Area, I noticed something was happening to Maasai, although at first I couldn't recognize what it was. It was only when I flew in one weekend and discovered that Maasai had been hit in the head with the blackjack and put in the hole that I began to understand. He was being punished for something ridiculously insignificant, 
and it was clear to me then that he was being tamed. After that, every time I saw Maasai, he was silent. He seemed to talk only when he was asked something directly, Maasai, the one who had first helped us understand on practice by Mao. When I finally understood what was going on, I became even more cautious, only yes people were kept at headquarters at that time, and I knew that if I ever said or did anything that upset David, he could do with me what he wanted. I vowed then that if I managed to not be killed by the Panthers, I would live to see them regret they hadn't found a way to do it. The only hope I saw for the party then was that Charles Gary was still working to get Huey out of prison. Huey was our only hope. But Gary had better hurry or there wouldn't be anything left of the party to straighten out. Denunciations had become a regular thing, and expulsions were the order of the day, and no longer just for legitimate causes and to clean up the party, but now to get rid of people David or June didn't like. After people were expelled, there would be an article in the Panther paper denouncing them for being agents provocateurs, pigs, crazy, or something else. The Panther paper became a tool of defamation. It got to the point that the mass line became the party line. In other words, if someone said anything about, for example, one of the conspiracy cases and their position didn't coincide exactly with the propaganda that was being put out by headquarters, they were branded a traitor. After severe physical punishment they would then be expelled and denounced in the paper. Take the case in Baltimore, for example. The pig they had in the closet turned out to be a real police agent who had infiltrated the branch, and when that was discovered, he was killed. I wasn't there, and I don't know any details, nor am I prepared to pass judgment as to whether that particular agent should have been killed or not, but I can say that doing things that way worked against the goal of developing the consciousness of people, which was what we were supposed to be focused on. People can learn from negative experiences as well as positive ones, perhaps even more so. On one of my trips to headquarters, David told me to go to Algiers and see Eldridge. I was pleasantly surprised. There was nothing I wanted to do more than that. I got my passport and made reservations for about three weeks later. Emery Douglas and Judy Hart, now Judy Juanita, also would be going. It was the first good excitement I had felt for some time. The next week, back in New York, I was heading to my pad after a day's work at the Harlem office when I spotted cars full of men parked all over the neighborhood. There was no doubt in my mind that they finally had my number. I rushed into the pad and told my girlfriend Suzanne that pigs were all over the place and to start making phone calls. And then I immediately went outside. I didn't want them to bust into the pad, there was too much valuable equipment that would be lost. Some of them were already walking up the other side of the street, and when they saw me come back out, they froze. If I had any hopes they were in the neighborhood to deal with something else, those hopes were laid to rest. My plan then was to try to get into the subway, but when I looked over my shoulder, they were piling out of cars on both sides of the street and some were already walking fast in my direction. I ran into the bar on the corner, but the bartender couldn't make change I needed for the phone, so I ran back outside, where at least I could attract a crowd. As I stepped outside, I was surrounded and arrested. I asked for what and was relieved to hear them start talking about violation of some gun laws. I didn't really understand what it was all about, but since I hadn't heard the word Baltimore, I had new confidence and went into my act. I demanded to see a warrant, which they didn't have, as it hadn't yet arrived from San Francisco, and then I started hollering for help, saying that I was being kidnapped, etc. I could have won an Oscar for my performance that night. 
it turns out they were agents from the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Tax Bureau of the Treasury Department. They were responsible for enforcing the federal gun laws that had just been passed, and the Federal District Attorney of Northern California had decided to arrest me as a test case for a new law that stipulated it was a felony offense for an ex-felon to have a firearm in his possession. The felony was from when I was busted working for the post office more than a decade before, the gun in question was the one I had supposedly used to assault the police who had attacked our office in San Francisco back in April. It was now November. They were going to take the case all the way to the Supreme Court, meaning that I was likely going to be convicted, with each appeal we might make being denied all the way up to the Supreme Court. It was a way for the feds to keep me hung up in courts. When they took me to their offices, it was clear they weren't regular police types. There was some young rookie standing in the hallway jumping up and down saying, good work, good work. Real square. It was his boss, the head of the office, who had led the raid. When they went to fingerprint me, it had been so long since they had busted anyone, the ink pad had dried up. I asked to be allowed to make the phone call I was entitled to and then dialed direct to the Panther office in Berkeley. David came to the phone, went into a rage, and started cursing and threatening me. I was speechless. He thought I had arranged to get myself busted to avoid going to Algiers to see Eldridge. I couldn't understand why he would think I would want to avoid seeing Eldridge. I was taken to the federal holding jail, and not only was I fingerprinted there but I was body printed too. I had never heard of such a thing. I still wonder if that was normal. They had me rolling in ink, arms, legs, chest, and back. It might have been done to intimidate me, and the most uncomfortable thing was being sent to my cell naked. I was taken to court the next day. The federal prosecutor asked that my passport be confiscated, and although the judge denied his request, he did uphold the request that I be restricted to New York, my place of residence, and to San Francisco, the location of the court where I was to answer to the charges against me. At last, the police had the means to keep me from traveling around doing my job. I was convinced that had my passport been confiscated, Hilliard would have sworn it was a setup on my part to avoid making the trip to Algiers. Murray Kempton, a New York writer and journalist, bailed me out of jail. He would later write a book on the New York 21 called The Briar Patch, The People of the State of New York vs. Lumumba Shakur, et al., for which he received the National Book Award in 1974, given Hilliard's reaction on the phone, I'm not sure he would have allowed the party to bail me out. Upon my release I flew to headquarters. When I saw Hilliard, he started ranting and raving like a madman, saying things like, you better get your ass over to Algiers. I don't care what they said about you traveling. I no longer understood anything or what I was supposed to do. Later, I overheard him talking in the next room to Connie Matthews, the party's international coordinator, saying, well, if he's not a pig then he's got nothing to worry about. I began to see a pattern. Maasai had been neutralized and now it was my turn, even though if anyone knew of my honesty and devotion to the struggle, it was David. There was no way he could believe I was an agent not with all he knew about me. Yet it was clear that he was going to neutralize me by trying to convince others I was a pig. I relaxed a little then, knowing he would never succeed with that. Nevertheless, I made a point of avoiding him until I went to Algiers. Finally, the big day arrived. I was going to see Eldridge again. When Judy, Emery, and I arrived at Orly Airport in Paris, Ellen Wright, the widow of author Richard Wright, 
and Julia Hervé, their daughter, met us at the airport. They invited us to the airport restaurant while we waited for the flight to Algiers. To reach the restaurant, we had to pass through customs into French territory, and as soon as we did, some men in civilian clothes flashed us official-looking identification cards and asked us to follow them. Apparently, they were from some branch of French intelligence, but it seemed clear they were working at the behest of the Americans. They took us into a back room and literally tore our luggage apart. A uniformed policeman did the searching and seemed to really like his job. He threw stuff everywhere. He was as nasty as any pig I had seen in the States. We were finally let go, but not in time to catch the flight to Algiers. Ellen then invited us to spend the night at her house. We called Eldridge and headquarters and got the order to immediately set up a picket line in front of the New York offices of Air France and their United Nations mission. The French authorities had to be shown they couldn't mess with us with impunity. When we returned to the airport to take the next scheduled flight to Algiers, we were again taken to the back room, and again we were released after the flight had left. We were furious to see the French authorities kissing ass and doing the Americans' dirty work. We went back to Ellen's, made more phone calls, and requested that influential friends of the Panthers intervene at the French embassy in Washington and lodge a protest against our treatment at Orly. Something apparently worked along the line, and when we returned the next day for the last flight to Algiers, we passed through without incident. On the way to the gate, I heard a voice calling, Monsieur Cox, Monsieur Cox, and I turned to see a policeman running down the hall carrying one of my file folders. Not only had we been harassed by the authorities, but it turned out they were thieves as well. I wondered how the folder had been stolen right in front of my eyes, when they were going through our stuff in the back room. I thought I was watching their every move. The file that had been taken contained letters from families of prisoners held in Vietnam. It was well known that the Panthers had relations with the Vietnamese people, and headquarters had received many letters from Americans whose family members were prisoners of war in Vietnam. They thought we might be able to forward the messages to their captive loved ones. Obviously, that upset the powers that be, who took it as a blow that people who had sons, brothers, cousins, fathers, and uncles imprisoned in Vietnam felt more confident going through the Panther Party than the government. That was why we had been targeted, Washington got their French lackeys to do their bidding. Even stranger, the policeman who returned my file asked if I would give him the stamps on the envelopes to keep as a souvenir. Finally we arrived in Algiers. I was impressed by our reception at the airport in Dar al-Bayda. I was also amused to discover that Dar al-Bayda means White House. Security men at the airport took us out of line and expedited all the formalities, and then we found Eldridge, Rahim, and Byron, who were waiting for us. As we drove through Algiers on our way to Eldridge's pad out and Point Pescade, I had images of Ponte Corvo's film Battle of Algiers swimming in my head. Point Pescade was where Ali La Point, the movie's main character, was from, that's where the point came from in his name, and I was thrilled to be in revolutionary territory. After greeting Kathleen, we sat down to talk. Eldridge wanted to know what was going on back at headquarters. Not knowing exactly what he knew, I kept quiet, waiting for a clue, hoping to see exactly where he was coming from. He told me David had sent me to Algiers for them to kill me. I felt like I'd been hit by a sledgehammer. My head started reeling. I couldn't think. I didn't really hear anything else that Eldridge said, although after a couple of tokish of good North African hash, I calmed down a bit, enough to understand that, as far as Eldridge was concerned, 
the Black Panther Party was conducting itself like a bunch of sissies. He pulled out Panther newspapers from the past few months to show me that there were no longer any images of guns in the paper. He couldn't see where the party was going. I was speechless. Those past months I had spent my energies getting support organized for the New York 21 and the people in New Haven, in addition to doing community work, and being so isolated from the center of power and decision-making that I hadn't noticed the changes in the paper. I was well aware, of course, that it had become a tool Hilliard used to condemn those in his disfavor, but the political shift had slipped right past me. Eldridge, however, saw it for what it was, the party was floundering. I agreed but had no ideas about what should be done. When Byron asked why Hilliard wanted to get rid of me, I really didn't know. Having nothing but the desire to see the Panther Party become the force capable of leading the struggle, I couldn't see why anyone would want to reproach me. I was sure my devotion to the struggle and the party was as strong as anyone else's, if not stronger. I couldn't think of anything I had done to get on David's bad side. Perhaps Hilliard wanted me out of the way because San Francisco had some of the most devoted and disciplined people as could be found anywhere in the party, people devoted to the struggle and not to any personal gain, and maybe Hilliard felt threatened by that. At the time, I gave no thought to his thirst for absolute power. As someone who never had any thoughts about personal power, and being mostly unaware about the effects of such power on some leaders' mentalities, I had overlooked that aspect of things. As was the case for Stalin, Hilliard did not have among many Panthers the moral authority that came of being respected within the party for his integrity, courage, or devotion to the struggle. The only thing that had put him in the position of power as the highest-ranking member of the party was the circumstance of the struggle, specifically that he was the only remaining leader not in jail or exile at the time. There was a vacuum of leadership at the top and so, within the party, he had taken it upon himself to exercise power and authority using force and repression. Thinking back, it's too bad he didn't show some of that same viciousness the night little Bobby was killed. Hilliard was one of those arrested in the shootout, and he was found hiding under a bed in the house next door, the house some policemen had stood on to shoot down at little Bobby and Eldridge. Feeling relieved to know Eldridge was not against me, the rest of my stay in Algiers was exciting, especially because I got to meet representatives of liberation movements from all over the world. It was the first time I was able to see the effects of our movement on the international level. Blacks in America were seen by many foreigners as being at the forefront of the worldwide struggle of oppressed people seeking liberation. Our courage was considered exemplary because we were actually struggling from inside the boundaries of the dominant world power. My devotion to the struggle was only deepened by all those new contacts. I met Elaine Klein, later known as Elaine Muckfee, who worked at the Ministry of Information, having left the States in 1951, during the McCarthy period, for France, where she stayed for 10 years. She had gone back to work at the United Nations with the Algerian office, as the unofficial Algerian mission at the UN was known during the War of Liberation from the French, and after independence, she moved to Algeria in 1962. Soon she was working in President Ahmed Ben Bella's press and information office, and she continued to live in Algeria even after the coup that brought Hwari Boumediene to power in 1965. More than any person, she was responsible for arranging the Panthers' welcome in Algiers, and Eldridge's especially. She is the one who made all the necessary contacts, and I hope she will always be remembered for that. Through Elaine, we also met Zora Selami, who worked with Elaine and later became the wife of Ben Bella. 
we were invited to the Embassy of the National Liberation Front of Vietnam to celebrate their National Day. That was a great honor for us. Little did we know that, later, their villa in the LBR sector of the city was to become our embassy, where we would house the international section of the Black Panther Party. One day during my Algiers trip, I received an urgent phone call from R.J. Engel, my lawyer. He told me that the judge assigned to my case was giving me 48 hours to report to him or he would issue a warrant for my arrest. I'm sure the judge did that at the request of the CIA or the FBI, if they hadn't been involved, the judge would have just waited until my next scheduled court appearance. I had little choice but to curtail my Algiers visit and return to San Francisco. On my way back through the early airport in Paris, I was once again summoned to the back room, and this time there were no pretenses. The questioning was done by an American, and I don't know which intelligence service he worked for, he could have been CIA or FBI but he was grubbier than any FBI agents that had ever crossed my path in the States. His disposition was as nasty as any racist policeman you could find on any street in the country. Naturally, we had no nice things to say to one another. Finally, I was allowed to catch my plane. I wondered whether they were trying to make me miss my court appearance. I arrived at the San Francisco airport around 9 in the morning, and the hearing was at 11. Instead of Judge Robert Peckham being satisfied at my appearance in court, he ordered my passport confiscated. It was clear he was working under orders, my coming back immediately was clear proof that I wasn't trying to run away, so he had no reason to ground me unless someone had told him to. Not having a passport presented me with a new set of problems. With potential consequences from the affair in Baltimore still hanging over my head, I wanted to be prepared to move at all times. Thinking about how to get around not having a passport, I remembered a playmate I'd grown up with who had been born the week before me. I knew his parents' names and his place of birth, so I set off for his birth certificate, which I figured would come in handy in case I ever needed to get a new passport. When the birth certificate came in the mail with no problems, I felt more at ease. In December of 1969, while I had been in Algiers, Fred Hampton, the chairman of the Chicago Panthers, was murdered in his bed, in his sleep, by a team coordinated by the FBI and Mayor Richard Daly's police. Four others were injured and another, Mark Clark, was killed in the raid. The authorities had every reason to be afraid of Fred, since he was the one responsible for organizing one of the most revolutionary forces in the movement, the Rainbow Coalition, composed of the Panthers, the Young Lords, and the Patriot Party. The last of these, representing poor, rural whites, were despised by Chicago's white communities, who saw them as immigrant hillbillies with backward cultures and funny accents, and the treatment they received from the police was similar to that received by blacks. Fred's work made clear to them the advantages that working with blacks, through the Panthers, would have in their struggle against a common enemy. In bringing these groups together, along with the Puerto Rican community represented by the Young Lords, Fred had become a powerful, charismatic revolutionary leader. And it was a mistake to kill him in his sleep. Up until that time, many potential supporters of the party had been lying back thinking that we were exaggerating the dangers inherent in the repressive potential of American authorities. If the pigs had ambushed Fred in the street and then lied about it, those people would have been able to hold on to their doubts. But breaking in and shooting Fred while he slept was just too much for the people to dismiss. There was not a single event that brought the Panther Party more support than the blatant murder of Fred, who had been shot while sleeping in bed next to his wife, who was nine months pregnant. 
And as of this writing, January of 1981, the guilty have still not been punished. That is, those who actually coordinated and carried out the attack. Now that I was back in the States, I was relieved to find upon my return to headquarters that Hilliard had calmed down considerably. He didn't know that I knew he'd sent me to Algiers to be killed, and I preferred to play it cool and act like I knew nothing about it. I wanted to always have the psychological edge when dealing with David. Unfortunately, he refused to let me return to New York, saying I was messing up back there. I knew that was only an excuse to put one of his own flunkies in my place, and the man he picked was Robert Bay. Once I'd gotten things organized and running fairly smooth, including garnering support for the New York 21 and the people in New Haven, Hilliard was ready to go back in and take control. He could lie and say whatever he wanted about me, but the organization of the Panther Party on the East Coast in December of 1969 compared to what it was in the spring of that year was irrefutable proof I hadn't fucked up all that bad. This was the time when I finally made the decision to leave the party. Now I just had to figure out how I could do it without having my name smeared in the Panther paper, or being killed. In the meantime I just hung around headquarters in the East Bay or at the San Francisco office. The federal authorities had effectively clipped my wings, and since Hilliard said I couldn't go to New York, I was stuck in the Bay Area. I moved to Hunter's Point, which had always been a magnet for me. I was comfortable there. I also got busy in the community, helping where I could. Synanon, a local drug rehab organization, made contact and said that if I would participate in their weekly criticism sessions, they would give the party some of the tons of surplus food stored in their warehouse. That was a real bonanza, I would have gone twice a week if they had asked. After the free breakfast for school children program, the free health clinics, and the free clothing program, we now had a free food program. Synanon was helpful to us, but it was also rather strange. In terms of helping people withdraw from heroin, Synanon had great success, but the weakness I saw in their system at that time was that most of the ex-addicts could not function in the outside world. As long as they lived inside the Synanon environment, they were okay, but once they left, there were many reshoots. The artificial environment inside Synanon became just as indispensable to them as heroin once had been. I also found the format of their criticism or character destruction sessions problematic. After my experiences with people off the streets, including junkies, I had become a firm believer in criticism and self-criticism, but only if it was used constructively. Synanon's approach was to have its members endure aggressive criticism from fellow members during special therapy sessions, and I could never get behind the idea that personal attacks to try to hurt someone was an effective way of getting them to improve their lives. I believed in comrades helping each other and forging unity, in my experience, that seemed to work as an incentive toward positive action. Anyway, we got the food from Synanon and the people in the community were happy, so it all worked out. On Hunter's Point, every family on the hill got at least one bag, and there was always enough food to distribute on both sides of the bay. Needless to say, that solidified the Panthers' ties with the community, not to mention our security, after the first day's distribution, the neighbors around the office would report to us every time they saw a police car pass by. When Emery and Judy finally returned from Algiers, Charles Gary, the Panthers' attorney, called a meeting with Emery, David, and myself. The tone and nature of his questioning was my first indication that all was not well between the leadership of the party and Eldridge. When we were asked our evaluation of Eldridge's behavior, Emery kept repeating, the man's crazy, the man's crazy, 
but he gave no details to substantiate what he was saying. After all I had seen from the current leadership, I assumed we were basically being asked to discredit Eldridge. And I wasn't going for it. I decided that at the first opportunity I was going to join Eldridge in Algiers. To hell with all this shit. As far as I was concerned, the party was finished, and it was just a matter of time before that would be clear for all to see. With the repression that had come down on the party from the authorities, not unexpected given our philosophy, those making the decisions started backing away from each other and kept on backing away until the final split. I was not aware of any attempt to devise new strategies and tactics to deal with the present conditions, and it seemed that the days of action were long behind us, leaving nothing but a lot of empty rhetoric and profanity. The Panther Party had become quite expert at identifying the problems and the real enemies, but in terms of analysis toward developing strategies, giving directions, and providing leadership to the struggle, zero. Nothing. Other than the few community programs, the only activity the Panthers were engaged in was defense work for all the comrades behind bars. I guess to keep me cool, Hilliard told me I could go to New York for a few days if I wanted. I caught the first thing smoking. I arrived at the moment our defense committee, headed by a white radical named Marty Kenner, had organized a fundraising affair for the New York 21 at the Manhattan Pad of Broadway composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein and his wife, Felicia. The Bernsteins, along with friends of theirs, were alarmed at the growing repression against the Panthers and wanted to hear, straight from the horse's mouth, just what we were all about. I went to their Park Avenue penthouse that night to represent the Central Committee. It was a curious evening to say the least. Felicia Bernstein seemed to be a genuinely concerned person, and Leonard was also, but he was a good actor, so I don't know if he really showed himself that night. Otto Preminger, the film director, appeared to be the most politically conscious of anyone there, and broadcast journalist Barbara Walters was the most honest. She made it clear that she would never allow me in her house and that she didn't approve of our activities, she only wanted to know if, in order for us to have what we wanted, she would have to give up her own comforts. Harry Belafonte's wife, Julie Robinson, was the most relaxed, and opera singer Leontine Price the most cowardly. While she and I were standing talking, someone approached us with a camera and she fled. That night we managed to collect a decent sum to help toward bail money for the New York 21, but it was writer Tom Wolfe who profited most from the evening. He wrote a lengthy article about the affair for New York Magazine and then later the same year turned it into a book, Radical Chic and Mau Mauing the Flak Catchers, which received a wide readership. I wonder how much he made off all that. I never liked leeches and sneaks. He had snuck in with a small tape recorder and recorded the whole evening so he could profit from the repression of the Panthers and mock our efforts to raise funds to free people who were subsequently found to be innocent, which we knew was the case all along. One who profits from the misery of others is a leech of the worst kind. Years later I heard him give his version of things on a French cultural radio station, he said his work got us good publicity, but that doesn't hold water for me. The Panthers were in no need of publicity help in those days, not with all the media coverage we were getting on our own. A full-page article about the party ran in the society section of the New York Times the next day, written by columnist Charlotte Curtis, who had been in attendance. As this layer of American society began to give us support, the reaction from the authorities was immediate and fierce. They launched a national campaign of slander and intimidation against what they, following Tom Wolfe, called radical chic. Many of our supporters from that class were intimidated and retreated, 
and the rest of the evenings we had planned similar to the Bernstein affair were cancelled. I had a secret meeting with Felicia Bernstein at the studio where she painted, and she told me of the misery she and Leonard had endured since the night of the gathering. They had been receiving constant hate mail and phone calls, including threats to their lives. She wanted to know if there was anything I could do to help. I could think of nothing, other than to reiterate my belief that all people should stand up and defend what they believe. Otherwise, fascism has fertile ground in which to grow. As a result of all the noise about the Bernstein gathering, talk show host Dick Cavett asked that I appear on his show. The opportunity to get our views across to a nationwide audience could not be passed up, and although I was uptight about it, having never overcome my timidity when speaking before groups, I was obliged to accept this type of public engagement because there were so few of us left in the Panther leadership. It was an uneventful evening, and it was disappointing but not unexpected that the show followed the typical practice of inviting a Tom to balance out the presence of a militant. I remembered the same tactic being used whenever Malcolm X went on TV or radio, using blacks to trap other blacks in contradictions. In this case, I was put up against Eleanor Holmes Norton, a black lawyer who worked for the American Civil Liberties Union. She had successfully defended a free speech case for Alabama's segregationist Governor George Wallace. It seems that Wallace's civil rights had been violated, and when he called upon the ACLU to defend him, they successfully did so, using a black lawyer. How sinister can you get? Not wanting to be tricked into a conflict on live TV, coast to coast, with another black person, which was exactly what they wanted, I only said I thought it was possible for a person to be too objective, using the black lawyer as an example. Walking in Harlem the next day, I was stopped by some black Muslims selling newspapers who congratulated me on how I dealt with the situation. Jean Janet, the French novelist and writer of the play The Blacks, was in liaison with the Panther Support Group in France, headed by Michel Persitz, and he decided to come to America to help us organize support for political prisoners in the intellectual community. He was denied entry, but thanks to the efforts of Persitz and Connie Matthews, Janet was eventually let in and he made his way to our Bay Area headquarters. Janet couldn't believe his eyes when he saw how we were living. The armor plates and sandbags guarding all windows and doors, with portholes for shooting out of, was something he couldn't reconcile with his image of the United States of America, the land of the free and the home of the brave. With the constant attacks on Panther offices across the country, however, he quickly understood over the course of his visit the necessity of such measures. While in the States, he moved from coast to coast, waging struggle on behalf of political prisoners. He was tireless. He had arrived with only the clothes on his back, his sole luggage his wallet containing what appeared to be hundreds of scraps of paper with scribbling on them, all of them held together with rubber bands and stuffed into his back pocket. While he was in Berkeley, we had been invited to an afternoon cocktail party organized at writer Jessica Mitford's home on Regent Street. Jean, Maasai, Emery, David, and I went to talk about the repression being waged against the party. Tom Hayden and Stu Albert, two of our staunchest allies from the radical white movement, were also present. The rest were mainly intellectuals from the Bay Area. Tom had been arrested and charged with conspiracy after the Chicago police riots at the Democratic National Convention in 1968, when Bobby Seale had also been arrested. There were eight defendants in all, and at their trial, Judge Julius Hoffman had ordered Bobby to be tied and gagged. Being the only black among the defendants, plus being the only one to be tied and gagged, it was a clear case of racism at work. 
When Tom spoke about the incident at the Mitford gathering, David thought he wasn't making that point clear enough, and he became furious, as only he could, or at least as furious as he could be when there was no immediate threat to him. He threw a soda pop bottle at Tom, and in response all the Panthers rose and jumped across the table to take up defensive positions. Janet was one of the first across the table. He was moving, instinctively, with us. My mind was blown and I began seeing him with new eyes. But, frankly, I was most shocked by Hilliard's action in the first place. And he hadn't even hit Tom, who had ducked out of the way. The bottle hit the teenage daughter of one of the guests, right in her face, and as she was screaming and bleeding, I knew we had forever lost the support of anyone we'd hoped to win over that night. Bobby, Erica, the New York 21, and everybody else needed all the support we could get, and yet there was David, trying to impress everyone, make them think he was a tough guy, but turning everyone off. I never got the chance to find out what Janet thought about it all. The only time we had a private conversation, we were debating what constituted revolutionary art. Running the party line, I argued that it was content that determined whether or not art was revolutionary, while Janet insisted that, no, it was not content but the practice of using a medium in a totally new way that determined whether art was revolutionary. Janet, I would later come to think, was right. His position was the solid one. My position was based on not wanting to be accused of deviationism in case he later repeated our conversation to others. Dogmas and party lines are the enemies of creativity and freedom of expression.